Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 173. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Makino, our Father, our King. Lord, we ask that you will be with us tonight as you always are. We know that you are faithful even when we are unfaithful. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you'll um, cause us to draw close to you and to um, better understand the text and, in fact, uh, take the words and allow them to penetrate deep into our hearts so that we can practically apply them. Uh, be with us uh, as we continue to go along. Uh, keep us safe. Uh, keep us blessed. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and we're in segment one, which is the Matthew 9, 14 through 17 study. Let's just jump right into the study. As you can see on my screen, we're about ready to take a look at a quote from Pastor John Piper. We're looking at this idea of um, a, a parable that Yeshua presented and um, there's some terminology in the parable that leads many Christian uh, pastors and Bible teachers to uh, the conclusion or interpretation that Yeshua is suggesting that Judaism is really on its way out as a religion or as a, a, a way of approaching God, a lifestyle, and that Jesus is introducing something new. So that's why we're talking about replacement theology. We've already talked about the introduction in replacement theology in previous studies, so go back and listen to those um, um, teachings that I provided for you on my website and on my YouTube channel. But let's jump into the study where I've got uh, my um, uh, highlight parked right now. Here's what I say in my own study. This is kind of a backtrack of last week. Near the end of his short sermon... Pastor John Piper, that's who we're going to be looking at, he made the following applications for his particular church. And this is based on his understanding of these particular verses. Now, the verses in question are the Matthew 9, 14 through 17, which we read earlier. Maybe I'll reference him once again uh, in this particular study. Keep in mind that this parable that Yeshua teaches in Matthew is also found in Mark and in um Luke, I believe. I, I think it's absent from John, if memory serves. So it's not found in all of the four Gospels. And of the three, I think Luke is the one that gives us the most detail, uh, if you were to, say, compare them all side to side, side by side. But nevertheless, for Pastor John uh, Piper's um, quote here, what I did is I, I bracketed in his um, in the quotation to indicate which topic is being addressed by his explanation, because the parable itself addresses, he talks, Yeshua talks about fasting, he talks about a bridegroom, he talks about um, uh, 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 putting wine into wineskins, and he also talks about um, sewing patches onto clothing. And so, um, Pastor Piper is going to be going through those types of uh, uh, details. In fact, let me just do this. Let me scroll back up and read the passage real quick. Otherwise, many of you who don't have a Bible handy might not be able to follow along with Pastor Piper's comments. So let me read the the, uh, the um, uh, verse real quick. The relevant passage is Matthew, for me anyway, again, this is found in two of the other Gospels. So depending on which, version, which uh, book you're reading it from, you'll get the general gist of the a parable. I do call it a parable. Earlier, I wasn't sure if that was really a parable because in Matthew it doesn't say parable, and in I think Mark he also the, the word parable isn't found, but in Luke the word parable is actually found, so it is a parable. Uh, here's what we have. Then the disciples of John came to him, coming to Yeshua, that is in verse 14, asking, "Quote, 
Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, The the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? Continuing, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. Yeshua continues, verse 16, But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Curious anecdote you would have to say from our perspective, but it obviously made sense to to the people then uh, who, was, who were listening to what he was saying. He continues in verse 17, Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay, so we've got this parable. And it's curious. Uh, let's talk about it. Scrolled back down to this example from uh, Pastor John Piper and pick up his um, comments. The first set of comments are going to be uh, addressing the issue of fasting. This is what um, Pastor Piper has to say. This is so stunning and so glorious and so unexpected in this form that Jesus said uh, that Jesus said that. Um, you just can't fast now in the situation. It is too happy, and and I think there's a typo there, and too spectacularly exhilarating. I'll have to go back and correct that later. So this is Pastor John Piper's comments on Yeshua's parable, on the, uh, the, the rendering that we just read. He continues, Fasting is for times of yearning and aching and longing, but the bridegroom of Israel is here. After a thousand years of dreaming and longing and hoping and waiting, he is here. Let me pause and interject just very briefly. Uh, So far, he's right on the nose, uh, right on the money. Um, Don't have any disagreements with him here. Um, In ancient Israel, particularly in Second Temple period times when which Yeshua and the disciples lived, Judaism saw fasting as connected to mourning. It was it was a, um, a, an indicator of um, a time of sorrow. And so, um, interestingly, the, you know, uh, the, the disciples of John who who question Yeshua, how come your disciples don't fast? And Yeshua says, can they fast when the bridegroom's with them? You know, when the bridegroom's gone, then they'll be able to mourn. And so he inter- interposes the word mourn with fasting in the rendering, if you didn't catch it earlier. And so that's what we know. Fasting and mourning were kind of um, co-related. They, 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 they conjured up the same um, idea in the Jewish mind of that day. So let's keep going, and of course, um, let me let me pause. We can't we can't lose sight of the fact that what Yeshua was telling them is was he was revealing that I am the bridegroom, right? You Israel are the bride, and I'm the bridegroom. I'm right here. Why would you fast and mourn when the celebrated bridegroom, the long-awaited marriage, is taking place before your very eyes? Right? I'm right here, and you can celebrate the wedding. You can celebrate the the, the, the bride and the bridegroom coming together. So don't mourn. Don't fast. The time will come. And of course, we know after Yeshua left, then persecution heated up. And yeah, there's a lot of time to mourn and fast then, right? Because there's so much um, persecution and, and, and martyrdom going on and things like that. Uh, Pastor John Piper continues, The absence of fasting in the band of disciples was a witness 
to the presence of God in their midst. So Yeshua's disciples had spent enough time with them to, to, to catch on to this idea that here is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the one that has been prophesied of old, the one that Moses spoke about, the one that Moses wrote about, and now is the time to celebrate. We're, we're doing things that are radically <clears throat> um, different because now we are experiencing the hope of Israel right before our very eyes. And so um, the disciples of John were catching this. Remember, John's in prison. And so he's hearing of this Yeshua, and he's certain that Yeshua must be the one that is coming, but he's just a little puzzled over Yeshua's behavior, right? You know, Yeshua's, uh, the rumor is, or it's not really a rumor, it's true, but Yeshua's been um, spoken of as hanging out with Gentiles and sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and and drinking wine and, 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 you know, he's just having a merry old time, and yet Israel's under, you know, Rome's ugly thumb and you know what gives so john's just it's got to make sure are, are you the right are you the one that, or should we be looking for someone else okay so let's continue with um pastor piper's comments and he's now going to talk about um the patching uh part of the parable the patch of unshrunk cloth right in yeshua's parable and the new wine they represent the new reality that has come with jesus now um pastor piper is correct in overlapping the patch part of the parable with the wine part of the parable or the unshrunk cloth right they um the the, the they they say the same thing it's kind of a form of tautology where you use two different stories or two different um tales or anecdotes to uh, yeshua often did this he would say the kingdom of god is like and then he would say something like a you know a mustard seed blah 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 blah. the king and again i tell you the kingdom of god is like and he would he would give a second parable right back to back with the first parable or you know two or three back to back and he's really saying the same thing, just repeating himself, but using um, kind of a stylistic way of saying it, just so it's not just repetition um, right on top of one another. So the the two parts of the parable here um, are are identical; that they mean the same thing. They're carrying the same um, meaning. And so uh, Pastor Piper's picking up on that as well. And so he says that both of them represent this new reality that has come with Jesus. And what is it? The kingdom of God is here. Now, I don't fully disagree with Pastor Piper on this part. The kingdom of God has dawned, right? The long-awaited last days that are spoken of in the prophets, and we're going to read about these last days and when we look, get to our um, our uh, um, liturgy part, and we're going to quote Jeremiah, Jeremiah's 31, 31 through 34 prophecy, behold, the days are coming, uh, says the Lord, right? The days that are coming, these achrit hayamim in the Hebrew, these last days, this is the time period that Yeshua is inaugurating, that he's bringing to uh, uh, pass before their very eyes. Now, little do they know that this last day time period that Yeshua was was inaugurating, that he was starting in their day, would last for 2,000 years now, right? We're still living in the last days. I mean, that's quite a long time period. But nevertheless, the kingdom of God is dawning. It's breaking into the now. I heard one pastor say it this way. He said, the future is invading the present. From their perspective, Israel read about the kingdom of God, and they knew that it was a time period that was going to be coming in the future. The thing is that if you read through the Mishnahs and Talmuds, the rabbis of those days 
had the opinion that it was still way on the horizon. They didn't really, they didn't sense how close it was. And so when Yeshua came and started doing all these miracles and and explaining um, himself to them, he he was just he was just revealing to them that the kingdom of God is breaking into the present time that you were living in, the the future that you thought was far into the future. It's invading the present. It's here right now. Indeed, there are aspects of the kingdom of God that are still future, right? We're going to read about those in our liturgy, Jeremiah 31 through 34. The time is going to come when God's going to break this new covenant upon Israel, and corporately she's going to accept their Messiah, Yeshua. That's still future, right? 2,000 years hasn't happened yet. That part of the kingdom of God hasn't happened yet. But the fact that individually you can embrace God personally, that part is here. So the kingdom of God is here. Yes, that new reality is absolutely here. Let's continue with uh, Pastor Piper. All right. He says, the bridegroom has come. And of course, Yeshua is the bridegroom. Israel is the bride. Um, Israel here is the remnant of Israel who has accepted Yeshua, the bridegroom, thus the church or the body of Messiah, aka the remnant of Israel, is that bride of Messiah who has accepted her bridegroom. The non-remnant of Israel, the the rest of Israel, the corporate part of Israel who is going to go on and reject Yeshua and put him on a cross and, and crucify him, take his life, that part of Israel, she's still the bride, but she has rejected her bridegroom. And so because of her blindness, God is going to have to take this truth of the kingdom of God being present and continue it using the Gentiles. He should have, well, I mean, if, if plant, if, if, I got to be careful how I say this. If Israel had not rejected her Messiah in the first century, we would imagine that the the fullness of Jeremiah's prophecy about um, you know behold the days are coming when um, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All of those words would have come to pass in Yeshua's day, right? There really wouldn't have been this two thousand year gap of the end times, at least we we, we imagine, right? But because of Israel's blindness and rejection of her of the bridegroom. She, the bride, has been put in a place of temporary hardness or blinding. She's she's partially stumbling. And be, as a result of that, the remnant caught it, and the Gentiles pulled the remnant into this truth of the kingdom of God being um, uh, inaugurated here on earth. But the rest of Israel lost it. They didn't catch it. They, they're they in kind of timeout fashion. They, they're not, they're not, they, they can't figure out what's going on. They're befuddled. They're confused. All right, so let's continue with Pastor Piper. The bridegroom has come. The Messiah is in our midst. And, Pastor Piper uh, remarks, that is not merely temporary, right? He's not merely here and then gone, like many of the rabbis that were thought to be the true teachers of Israel, right? They would show up, they would teach, they would, um, you know, cause a scene, you know, um, create a following around them, a bunch of students would gather around them, maybe a school would be raised up around in their name or something like that. But then after a short while, then they're pretty much, they're gone. They're here, they're gone. You know, there's no real power in that rabbi's um reputation or name left after a while. I mean, it's just whatever the latest rabbi that would, you know, hit the scene and have the latest teachings, the latest and the greatest, let's follow him for a while. Well, Yeshua is quite different from that. He's not merely temporary. He's not merely here and then gone. Pastor Piper says it this way, the kingdom of God did not come in Jesus and then just vanish 
out of the world, right? Poof, it's gone. Unlike some of the other um, uh, teachers, and I would fill in for the rest of what Pastor Piper would have uh, said here. I, I've I've shortened his um, comment here because it was quite lengthy. The sermon part I've I've shortened for my own commentary here. But I, th- I seem to remember from listening to his sermon that he went on to talk about uh, the same comparison that I'm talking about. That teachers of, of Israel would come and they would go, and you know generations would would come and go, and then um, theology would change, and you know uh, there'd be um, um, just. Uh, a very kind of a roller coaster ride of of teachings, you know, which one was popular and etc. But Jesus was quite different. His kingdom theology had a lasting impact because it was accompanied by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, not just um, in the uh, signs and wonders that were taking place in that day, but it would it the the power of the of the message of the gospel, of the kingdom continued on in the teachings and the writings of Paul and the Apostolic Scriptures and the rest of the disciples, the, the apostles that carried the message, um, and the believers that continued and to form uh, church groups and home churches and small groups, and eventually the church grew and grew and grew and grew until this message of the gospel went around the world. And so uh, it wasn't just this local, grassroots, um, popular charismatic rabbi that hit the scene and then he was gone, right? Jesus, Yeshua's message was quite radically different, and thankfully so. So now, Pastor Piper's going to turn to the wine and the wineskins, right? So I put the little uh, part in brackets. And Yeshua, or and Jesus says, the old wineskins can't contain it. The old wineskins can't contain this radical new gospel message, now, listen to what Pastor Piper has to say next. Okay, this is very careful. He says, he asks the questions, what is the old wineskin? And really, that's the heart of my teaching, my commentary. In the opinion of Pastor Piper, what is the old wineskin? He answers for us. In the context, it seems to be fasting. Now, just keep following, following along for a moment, because first you're thinking, what? What's the big deal about fasting? In the context, it seems to be fasting. Fasting was inherited from the Old Testament and had been used as part of the Jewish system relating to God, which is true, and meaning the part that it was a system relating to God. And you remember, um, Pharisees were known to fast like twice a week, um, like every Tuesday and Thursday or something like that. I can't remember exactly which days, but even it got to the point in the first century that because fasting was such a regular part of religious life, not just in Judaism, but eventually get carried over into Christianity, the part of Christianity that broke away from Judaism, it was so regular that even when the Christians continued to fast, in order to distance themselves from being um, misunderstood as Jews, right? They were trying to kind of stand apart and stand on their own. Um, they changed their fast days from, from different days. So you Jewish people, you fast on Tuesday and Thursday. Well, we're going to fast on Monday and Wednesday or something like that, right? So different days. So it was this kind of this um, identifying marker. Um, but it was still part of a system of relating to God, just like uh, Pastor Piper was talking about. Fasting was inherited from the Old Testament and had been used as a part of the Jewish related system related to God. He goes on to say, um, now Jesus says the old wineskins of Judaism can't contain the new wine. He goes on to say, the new fasting is based on the mystery that the bridegroom has come, not just will come. 
the new wine of his presence calls for new fasting. Now, that's the end of the quote from uh, Pastor Piper. Um, if I click on the um, footnote number three, you'll see that it was taken from... Um, and I've got more to, more quotes from Pastor Piper, but this first quote um, is uh, parked on his website, desiringgod.org, and you can just um, look up the sermons and uh, find whatever uh, reference relates to which sermon. All right, so um, let's continue in my own commentary. Um, let's see, let's read this paragraph, and... Maybe this paragraph, maybe the next two paragraphs, and then we'll we'll uh, take a break from there. Okay, so here's my own comments, okay? Please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say in this commentary. I actually sincerely appreciate Pastor Piper's passion for holiness, and I'm currently engaged in a study or more of his sermons in an effort to strengthen my own walk with Yeshua. I say currently because at the time that I wrote this commentary, I was going through several of his sermons. Um, I mean, I, I said this in last week's um, uh, live study. I'll say it again. Pastor Piper is one of the best out there. He's one of the more um, solid uh, preachers um, on holiness. Uh, he's not fluff. Uh, the um, the the passion in his preaching is evident from every message I've ever listened to. Um, he's just contagious when it comes to um, stoking that fire inside of you towards uh, following after God and following after righteousness and and keeping your um, your first love with Yeshua the keeping those fires stoked hot pastor Piper is a great resource there so if you if you need some personal revival uh, you don't need to look much further than pastor John Piper so um, um, I highly recommend his uh, uh, resources on that note I say I highly recommend his desiring God series of teachings indeed his whole website is entitled desiringgod.org right however if this single sermon is an accurate representation of his general theology in this particular area then I cannot help but disagree with his application of these particular verses Right, that we're, we're looking at, as if Yeshua were saying that his own new, quote-unquote, teachings, Yeshua's new teachings, have come to replace the old Jewish system of relating to God. Now, in all fairness, and I'm going to say this again as well, Pastor Piper, I think, was focusing just on the fasting aspect. So I don't know, I'd have to dig a little bit deeper um, that's why I'm trying to be very, very careful not to quote Pastor Piper out of context or make him say something that he's not really saying. And we don't have time in this commentary to review all of Pastor Piper's commentaries. Um, so we're, we're just going to kind of go with what we've got at the moment. Um, so uh, that's why I say in my commentary again, uh, and this is for all of you as well, I must stress that I do not disagree with Piper's concept of hungering and thirsting after the holiness of God. I mean, that is absolutely foundational. And this is why I think it's very careful, in my experience, as you are charting your way through your study of the Word of God, if you're someone who's inclined to um, follow up the Hebraic roots, or you're seeking to re-embrace the laws of Moses or the ancient paths or something like that, there's always this danger in the Messianic movement to treat standard traditional 
uh, garden variety Christian theology as something that's inferior, as if you've arrived as this messianic, right? You've been shown this truth that that Sabbaths and kosher and, and the law of Moses and all that stuff is, is still relevant. And suddenly your head swells with all this knowledge and you, you get this idea that I don't need to listen to, the, to those pastors anymore because after all, they're, they're antinomian, right? They think the law of Moses is done away with. How stupid can they be? What what kind of... What kind of um, Nutrition can I gain from listening to them? This is a wrong-headed approach. Um, on the contrary, there's quite a bit of um, uh, depth of nutrition that's missing from many Messianic teachers these days. And so, for that reason, you've got to supplement all of your Torah commentaries, your Torah teachings, your, your searching after the Law of Moses. Also. You've got to supplement that with a healthy dose of Christian um, theology that is still rooted and grounded in the foundational truth, and Pastor Piper is going to fill in that um, uh, fill in that need there. I, I highly uh, suggest that you uh, put him on your on your YouTube playlist or whatever you do, um, and listen to his uh, uh, teachings. So I go on to say in my commentary, indeed. We must, with a capital M, we must pant after our Lord as if our very life depends on it. From point of fact, it does. Right? Listen to Pastor Piper's message. You're desiring God, right? Hungry and thirsting after God. You've got to be in that place or you're not going to be filled. And I can tell you right now, if you're gonna if you're looking for it in all of your messianic fancy teachings, right? Unfortunately, there's a lot lacking there. I'm 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 really saddened to say that. I wish it wasn't that way, but the messianic movement is still quite young and is still quite messy, right? Those first few letters in the word messianic, messy. Yeah, it's quite messy. And so um it takes um co- uh content that's kind of well established. It's been um foundational for for decades and for centuries, uh you know, like standard Christian teachings. And so you've got to keep those um teachings in your uh in, in, in your for, in your forefront in the, in your mind uh, in your purview in your in your wallet in your on your playlist right uh, you got to keep them handy there otherwise you're gonna dry up you're gonna dry up um, in fact I, I close this um, paragraph with a quote from acts for in him we live and move and exist of course that's acts 1728 and I think what I'll do is I'll stop right there for our uh, study in Matthew tonight uh, Judaism v Christianity we'll pick up um, looking at Pastor Piper's uh, message some more next week. We're not done with this uh, quote just yet. I've got two two more uh, paragraphs to to examine, and um, we're we're just looking at this parable of Yeshua's in Matthew nine fourteen through seventeen through the lens of different pastors and commentaries to see what we can ascertain on their perspective and find out whether or not it's a perspective that's worth. Um, holding on to, or if it needs to be maybe perhaps set uh, on the side of the table and compared with other perspectives. Okay, but that'll do it for um, Matthew 9, 14 through 17, Judaism v. Christianity. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman I'm a member uh, and a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatunva, the Harvest Congregation. You can find us online at graftedin.com, and we'd love to have you join us in on in person, or at least uh, catch our YouTube videos online if you're not able to join us in person. You can also find me online at my own personal Torah teaching website at www.tatesatorah.com. Uh, I'd love to have you. Um, uh, take a look at my website and uh, browse through all the commentaries and resources that you can see on your screen right now. Uh, just just 
click on anything there, uh, read through it. Most of my commentaries are written, but these days a lot of them are turning into videos and audio commentaries. So uh, make sure you bookmark my webpage and visit it quite often, okay? Speaking of my own uh, personal resources, find me on YouTube's channel at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate's Torah Ministries. And you can see that I update, uh, it says that I uh, my uh, uh, YouTube channel is updated daily and that's that is true. In fact, it's twice a day, actually. I'm quite the busy uh, busy Torah teacher here. So um, if you do hit my uh, YouTube channel, make sure you look at all these little things that are uh, swimming around the screen right now. Um, make sure you subscribe, uh, hit the thumbs up, hit the bell for notifications. Um, you know, leave me comments, uh, share the, share the, uh, uh, the, 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 um, links with other people in your social media circles. Just get involved, jump right in and share all the good stuff with everyone else. Okay. Live internet studies brought to you week after week. Here's some, uh, brief, uh, logistics. This is episode number 173 for, uh, March 12th, 2022 on the USA side of the, uh, uh, calendar. Um, we meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. The hour long study is broken up into two 30-minute segments. The first segment, which we just finished, was an examination of Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? And we just looked at part five, or we're embarking on part five. Segment two, 30 minutes, uh, is exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Paper three, who or what is the Holy Spirit, part 105. We'll look at that in a moment. And then if we've got time, um, we'll watch the featured YouTube video from the SQSA live series, What is the Law of Christ? These live internet studies are brought to you via Skype. As you can see, the blue link, uh, blue Skype uh, banner on my screen right now. If you click that right now, as we're in the live studies, it will launch Skype through your browser and you'll be able to join us in the live study right there. Hey, hey, isn't that nice? So um, set your calendar for our Skype. Uh, set your calendar for our live studies each uh, Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. and join us for the live study one of these times. But if you can't, Make sure you visit my website and scroll all the way down to the very bottom of the website to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing. And take a moment to consider partnering with me in this great endeavor to bring the Torah to the nations, to take God's word uh, around the world via the medium of internet. You can click the little yellow donate button and, and um, um, uh, donate to my ministry and help me out and partner with me in this particular capacity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and jump back into our study here. We've been charting our way through this uh, quite lengthy study. It's almost been about two, it'll be three years this uh, fall, I think, if I remember looking, that we've been going through this Shema study. Hopefully, I'll finish it this fall. I, I didn't mean to drag it out this long, but it's quite a lengthy study. I'm trying to be, um, I'm trying to hit as many of the um, Trinity-type discussions, topics that pop up as, as possible. We're in paper three of three, right? It's three-part study there, pun there intended. Um, um, and so as I scroll down to the links that you can see on my screen right now, we're in the section number four and we're almost done. Uh, well, we're over halfway done. Who, what is the Holy Spirit? Uh, the filioque debate, Eastern Orthodoxy, those Latter-day Saints, and social twin Trinitarian thoughts. And so this is a section on that discussion. We're kind of um, uh, moving away from the filioque debate, uh, you know, who 
sends the Holy Spirit? Is it God the Father or is it God the Son? The answer is yes, right? But don't tell that to the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church because they are going to fight about that like they've been doing for the last 1,000 years. Um, but in our study, um, we're talking about Eastern Orthodoxy's view of the Holy Spirit as seen through the lens of social Trinitarianism. And so let's drop down into the study. Okay, let's pick up my commentary right here. So I say, I imagine that your average evangelical Christian believer may find him or herself naturally drawn to the social Trinitarian model. Now, um, social Trinitarianism, you're thinking, what's, what's, what is that? Right? What is social Trinitarianism? Um, essentially, without getting too technical at this point in my commentary, there are different ways of taking the, the basic aspect of one, one God, three persons, and focusing on the either the nature of God or the functions and roles that God plays among humans. And depending on which aspect you focus on, whether you focus on more of the one God having three persons, or you focus more on the three persons all being the one God, you can either flip the triangle right side up or upside down. I'm going to put it on the screen for those of you in post-production. And you can see that from the Catholic perspective, there's a focus on of Father, Son, and then Holy Spirit, or something like that. I'm sorry, on on um, Father, and then Son, and then Holy Spirit, and then with the uh, the Greek Orthodox or the Eastern Orthodox model, it's flipped upside down. It's the focus starts with God the Father, and then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, or something like that. So those are some of the differences between the the different um, terminology that we might use to, when we're talking about trinity ontological trinity um uh latin trinity um social trinity trinity um you know all these different like if you just google search the word trinity you're going to end up uh finding some generic um terminology related to trinity right one god three persons or one what three who's or something like that and that's maybe the part that they share in common right there's father son holy spirit but keep in mind that even among those who are non-trinitarian they still recognize three powers in heaven there's god there's his spirit there's his son you may not call yourself a trinity you may call yourself a trinitarian you may call yourself a unitarian or a jehovah's witness or latter-day saint or christadelphian or iglesiani christo or or one of these you know worldwide church of god or one is pentecostal or something like that and so you're not following a trinity model but you have three um powers or three important figures in your theology god you have father son holy spirit you may not call them all god uh, or something like that so different terminology has to be um, brought in to to kind of differentiate your perspective on trinity versus the next person down the road his perspective on trinity that's kind of what we're talking about so social trinitarianism your average evangelical christian believer who has no e either Catholic interest or either Greek Orthodox interest. So kind of a Protestant, I believe that's what I'm focusing on right now. They might actually not find themselves naturally drawn to the social Trinitarian model. And I actually have the definition 
a uh, part of the 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 um the, the social trinitarianism maybe i can read that again first uh that would have been pretty good orthodox christian theology asserts that the one god is manifest in three persons this term was generally used in the latin west social trinitarian thought argues that the three persons are each distinct realities and this was generally presented in the east with the greek term hypostasis from the first council of nicaea onward hypostasis was here employed to denote a specific individual instance of being so the trinity is composed of three distinct persons or hypostases which are in integral relation with one another end quote and i think that's a quote from wikipedia or no it is at britannica that's uh wikipedia okay so um social trinitarianism doesn't sound too terribly dangerous or heretical or anything like that and that's part of what i'm saying in my commentary however however i should be quick to remind you right you your average garden variety evangelical believer who's listening to this youtube video or watching this uh, youtube video or listening to this podcast i need to remind you of what biblical unitarian christian dr dale tuggy wrote in his stanford encyclopedia entry on trinity concerning some of the quote in quote uh, the quote unquote weaknesses of the social trinitarian model so we're talking about trying to explain god and there are different um viewpoints that are put forth that's why we call them models i know some christians are a little put off by this term model when i keep using i say trinity model and they say what do you mean trinity model there's just what the bible teaches and that's it there's no model there's just the biblical perspective and that's it ah but i need to remind you if you take all of the biblical data and put it on the table for examination there's a lot of what we would might recognize as equivocation or ambiguity in some of the texts and terminology related to the nature of god and trinity so there's not just one view that the bible presents um that we can walk away with for instance if if we were to say jesus is god in a in a church setting and have everybody raise your hand and say how do you interpret this phrase jesus is god which by the way doesn't show up in the bible in verbatim right jesus is god but is a view that's held as a conviction me included by many many believers whether you're catholic protestant um or greek orthodox right jesus is god all right but if we were to ask the question what does this mean to you how do you interact with this term this phrase jesus is god you're going to get quite a bit of different explanations going on some people will say like one is pentecostal might say well to me jesus is god means there's only one god and his name is jesus in full stop but the the trinitarian sitting next to him i say no that's not quite right jesus is god means that jesus is fully divine just like god the father meaning there is one god but jesus and god are both somehow in a mysterious way one with the same god they're both equal in identity when it comes to god and yet they are distinct in person right and so the one is pentecostal and the trinitarian sitting next to him are going to have this argument and disagreement over this phrase jesus is god well why is that the case they're both reading from the same bible right it's because of the equivocation on the word god the the ambiguity of the word god does it mean deity does it mean divine does it mean the person right is is do we collapse everything that god is into the name jesus or vice versa everything that jesus is in the name god i mean 
if you say one God, three persons, then but yet you believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, well then um, the you know Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet using the little um, Trinity shield that you're probably seeing on your screen right now. The Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. So we have to make sure that we're not making the Bible say something that it isn't saying. And by doing so, we have to um, create what I'm calling models. This is what we do, right? So don't get terribly put off by the phrase model there. Um, but let's talk about the social Trinitarian model and see some of its um, weaknesses. This is according to Dr. Dale Tuggy. He's our resident Unitarian that we've been um, kind of uh, 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 you know borrowing um, on our uh, uh, studies as of late. He hasn't really contributed to my comment or anything like that. Uh, he he made a comment in one of my videos and I re replied to him, but I never heard from him since then. But here's what he has to say: Western or Latin or Augustinian theories are contrasted with Eastern or Greek or Cappadocian theories. So let me pause for a moment. When we say Western or Latin or Augustinian, we're talking about those within the camp that would identify themselves as Catholic. That's what we mean by Western. And the contrast is made with Eastern or Greek or Cappadocian, and those would be people who would put themselves in the camp of Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox, something along those lines. Okay, so those that's where we're finding the, uh, the contrast. Uh, Tuggy continues, and the difference between the camps is said to be merely one of emphases or starting points, which is why, let me flash that, those um, triangles on the screen one more time. You see the Catholic triangle is one orientation, with an emphasis on Father, Son, Holy, Holy Spirit. And the Greek Orthodox is a different orientation, right? It's flipped in reverse of the Catholic one, and the emphasis is different. Even though it's got the same names, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it just has a different starting point, right? We, and what do I mean by starting point is, is God, is there one God who's made up of three persons? Notice the order of my sentence, one God, three persons. Or we could say, is it three persons who are one God? Notice the order of my starting point. Three persons, one God. I know many, many, many evangelicals are going to say, it doesn't matter, Ariel. It doesn't matter where you start. You're, gonna, you're saying the same thing. Whether you're saying one God, three persons, or three persons, one God, aren't you really saying the same thing? As an evangelical, as a Protestant myself, right, a non-Catholic or non-Greek Orthodox, I kind of have to agree with most people out there and say, yeah, in, in my opinion, it's what's the big deal, right? Sounds like we're just splitting hairs, arguing over terminology. One God, three persons, three persons, one God. I mean, what's the big deal? But I guess it matters quite a bit in the theology of uh, Catholicism, the Church of the West, the Church of the East, particularly a thousand years ago when they decided let's break apart from one another and have our own theology when it comes to um, Trinity. So, Dr. Tuggy continues, the Western theories, right, the Catholic ones, um, it is said, emphasize or start with God's oneness, right? And that's why the triangles are flipped the way they are. They start with God's oneness, and what they do is they try to show how God is also three. So, without saying that there are three gods, they emphasize the oneness of God, the, 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 the monotheistic aspect of God. There's one God. That's kind of the primary um, uh, statement that kind of um, is in your face when you're talking about Catholic Trinity models 
or Trinity um, discussions. Um, one God, but yet there's three persons, but not three gods, right? We got to backpedal a little bit when we say God is one, yet three. We don't mean the three gods, right? That's heresy. That's tritheism. What we mean is there's three persons or something, even though the word person doesn't show up in scriptures. However, Tuggy reminds us, whereas the Eastern theories about uh, Trinity, they emphasize where they start with God's threeness, right? They talk about the, the three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the, the economic Trinity, or um, the fact that, that God has these this social relationship with himself. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in this loving um, relationship with one another from all eternity, and yet there are three, and they try to show how God is also one. So they emphasize they start with three. They're not describing three gods. They're describing three persons, they being the Greek Orthodox uh, Church in the East. They're describing three persons, three hypostases we talked about earlier, and yet there's still one arche, one source, one um, a root of Trinity, or one source of Trinity, which is God the Father, or something to that effect. Uh, Tuggy continues, the two are thought, speaking of the Church in the East and Church of the West, the two are thought to emphasize respectively psychological or social analogies for understanding the Trinity, and so the latter, right, the, um, the, the, the Greek Orthodox, they're, they're often called social Trinitarianism, right? We talk about social analogies. Um, we can talk about these uh, relationships that a father and a son and the Holy Spirit should have with one another and how that there's this loving dependency upon one another where the father uh, sends the son. So the, 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 um, the begetting is from father to son, and yet when we talk about Holy Spirit, this it's procession, but it's procession from father to Holy Spirit, and so that's what I mean when we, uh, I believe that's what uh, Tuggy is referring to when he's talking about social analogies and and things like that. Um, it's very important to to um, uh, Greek Orthodox Trinitarians that we get this aspect correct: father, son, begetting. Right, Father begets the Son, although it's not the type of begetting that is to be equated with creating. Right, the Son is not created; he was he was begotten yet uncreated. Right, I think that's how the creed forms it. And yet, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it's procession. Um, Tuggy reminds us, however, but this paradigm, right, the paradigm of social trinitarianism, so the paradigm of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all this stuff, it has been criticized as confused, unhelpful, and simply not accurate to the history of Trinitarian theology. And that's lifted, of course, from his um, uh, uh, his uh, Stanford Encyclopedia entry on the uh, uh, Trinity, if I were to click on the, uh, the, uh, the footnote there, number 34, but I'm not going to do that right now. And let me just read uh, one more um, paragraph here in my commentary, and then we'll probably uh, call it a break for this part of the study as well. I go on to say, again, because part of this gets very technical. I know those of you are watching my videos and trying to follow my studies on Trinity. Some of you are really kind of getting lost, and you're saying, why all the technical mumbo-jumbo? Why don't you just stick with what the Bible says about who God is and just leave it at that? And the reason I, I do get a bit more technical in some of my commentaries is Number one, intellectually speaking, not every one of us out there, not all of us out there, um, are satisfied with just 
reading what the Bible says, and then formulating our own opinions. We all come to the discussion on this topic from different angles, and we all have different uh, itches to scratch, and we all have, all have different interests to try to satisfy. Um, so we, we're all we are all think differently. We we analyze the information differently. I myself, I happen to be more analytic. I th- I, try, I tend to think more like Dr. Dale Tuggy. It's probably because of the my neurodivergent way of thinking. It's my my um, <clears throat> it's my um, my uh, 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 autism that's that's uh, uh, bleeding through. But um, if you're not a neurodivergent thinker like me, if you're a neurotypical thinker, meaning you're non you're not on the autistic scale like I am, then you tend to just maybe process information quite standard, quite regularly. You don't get stopped and get caught up on uh, maybe particulars or or um, you don't chase rabbit trails or things like that. And so I'm not the only one out there that thinks the way that I think. Um, and so some people need a little bit more technical aspect, and so I'm trying to um, uh, be uh, uh, aware and cognizant and help those people out as well, people who think like I think. So, I say in my commentary in closing, indeed, as we observed from paper two above, Dr. Molto, Molto, I think, went on to explain, quote, Leftow, he's another um, philosophical Christian who lends a lot of weight to the discussions on the issues of Trinity and how should we understand God. But again, he's more in the camp of, of philosophical and analytic thinking like um, like Dr. Tuggy and things like that, if I remember Leftow. But Leftow has argued that among other problems with social Trinitarianism, Trinitarianism it risks collapsing into a form of Arianism, listen up, Arianism, which is a, her- a heresy, why would it risk that? It's because, according to the Leftow, it posits multiple ways in which something may be divine, rather than just a single way in which something may be divine. So you got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all divine, and yet, how can the Father be the source if Yeshua is the source? Right? That's mystery. I understand that. Um, social Trinitarians would say, well, it's because there's there's the Father who's one way of being divine, maybe, and yet the Son has a different way of being divine, yet they're both they're both divine, but in their own unique way they're divine, right? And we have to we have to give a little bit of credit to that because you you start thinking about that, right? Yeshua is God, and yet wait a minute, is God human? Well, no, not God the Father. Yeshua, being very God, he's fully divine, he's fully God, yet he's truly human at the same time, and yet the Father's not truly human. There's no divinity, there's no humanity there. The Holy Spirit has no corporeal body to him that I'm aware of, unless you want to count the dove that you know flew down on Yeshua's head. But you begin to realize that there is a discussion that needs to take place on how to accurately describe and articulate the 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 um hypostatic union right the the dual natures that yeshua uh possesses he's fully god yet fully human right does that mean that half of his mind knows everything but the other half has limited understanding i mean how does he wrestle with that inside you know those th- types of things does he have two spirits uh, you know two divine souls and so those there's some some really valuable discussions that could take place, and left out simply just reminding us that um, when we're talking about social trinitarianism, where we're emphasizing the threeness, 
as opposed to emphasizing the oneness like the Catholic model. The social Trinitarian model that emphasizes the threeness sometimes if you if you if you're not careful with the language someone listening to that conversation might get the idea that there's multiple ways that god is actually divine and yet the bible doesn't really give us all of those particulars i mean is there really three divine aspects is is the divinity broken up into three different parts and how do we add up the math is is it 100% for each parts for each part, or is it like 30% plus 30% plus 30% or 33, 33, you know, where does the math fit in that type of thing? So I think we'll stop at this point. I don't want to get too um, uh, uh, technical. Uh, we'll pick this up next week. We'll con- continue talking about this. Uh, but that'll do it for discussions, uh, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to our liturgy for tonight. Um, we looked at Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 for the last few weeks and we basically did some kind of some word studies on some of the different uh, terms found in this particular passage. I'm going to try and wrap up this particular uh, liturgy section tonight and all I'm going to do is read verse 31 through 34 um, in the English and um, and then let's see do I want to read Tim Hague's comments? Or do I want to read the English, the Hebrew, the Greek? Um, I think I think I'll cut it short tonight and read just the English and Tim Hegg's comments, and then next week I'll just read all of the English, all of the Hebrew, all of the Greek, and then read the, the this other rabbi's comments about new com, new new covenant. Okay, so let's go like that. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one through thirty-four. Uh, again, we're not going to be reading any Hebrew tonight, only the uh, English. We'll save the Hebrew and the Greek for next week. But we will be reading Tim Hague's comments, so stick around for that. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 32, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. We're going to look at that phrase tonight. I will put my law within them from Tim Hague's perspective. I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the final posic, the final verse, verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, quote, Know the Lord, and quote, we looked at that last week, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's look at this phrase um, uh, that's found in uh, verse 33. I will put my law within them. What does what does it mean that he uh, that God says I will put my law within them? Here's what Tim Hague has to say. He wrote a commentary to the book of Hebrews, which makes the longest running quote from the book of Jeremiah in Hebrews chapter eight, verses eight through twelve. We're not going to look at the Hebrews passage. We'll look at that next week. Instead, I'm just going to read Tim Hague's comments here. It's about two paragraphs, so just bear with me, and that'll conclude our um, liturgy for tonight. Then we'll jump straight into the video, and then we'll um, dismiss in prayer. Here's what uh, Tim Hank has to say. I will put my laws into their minds, all right? He's um, making a comment on the 
Hebrews passage. The Greek of our text is almost exactly the same as the LXX, the Septuagint, right? The only exception being that the LXX doubles the verbal idea for emphasis while our author does not. So if you look at Tim Haig's uh, commentary here in the yellow, he, rep he reproduces the Septuagint Greek on the first line, which says, Didus doso namus mu eis tain dianoion auton. And then in the book of Hebrews, he reproduces the Greek text there, which says, Didus namus mu eis tain dianoion auton. And you don't have to be able to read Greek to be able to see that there's an extra word. Um, this first word, didus, um, in saying, uh, or, 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 or putting, I'm sorry, putting, uh, is repeated from the Septuagint to the book of Hebrews, didus, didus. But in the Septuagint, there's an extra word, didus doso, which is basically, um, putting I will put, which is a typical Hebraic way of doubling up a verb to make emphasis. The English would would have this as, and Tim Haig uh, highlights this for us, the LXS doubles the verbal component for emphasis, reading, quote, I will surely put my laws, or I will will, or I will put put, I will put and putting, or something like that. It's, it's you know, we could overemphasize the the Greek word there, but I will surely is what we would how we'd smooth it out in English. I will surely put my laws into their minds. And this mimics, like Tim has Tim Higgs says, a Hebrew idiom of using an infinitive followed by its cognate finite verb to make the statement emphatic. He continues, the other obvious differences between the uh, Septuagint and the, um, the the quote in the book of Hebrews are this. Number one, the Septuagint, the LXX, as well as our Hebrews text, has mind, which is uh, dianoia, rather than simply following the Hebrew, which has, I will put my Torah within them, right? Natati bakir, uh, et torati bakirbam. I'm sorry, natati et torati bakirbam. I will put... Uh, my Torah within them, um, literally. And again, the, the, the Hebrew, the, the book of Hebrews as well as the LXX, instead of saying within them, it adds the word mind. Okay, so that's different. The second difference, Tim Haig notices, is that the Septuagint as well as the book of Hebrews have the plural, namus, right? Namus mu, the law of me, or my laws. Literally, it's the, the law of, of mine or the law of me. While Jeremiah has Torati, which is my Torah. So slightly different, um, but it doesn't change the uh, meaning terribly, right? My laws, my Torah. Again, um, my Torah is in the singular, whereas my laws are in the plural in the Greek. So again, um, the Torah is a collection of laws, so that doesn't change the meaning at all, really. Here's what Tim Hank continues to say. Once again, these variations are slight, and easily explained that the LXS had used namas almost exclusively to um, translate Torah makes it understandable why our author who is quoting from the Septuagint would use namas in our text as well. That its plural reflects the fact that in this context particularly, the issue is one of future obedience in contrast to past obedience, right? Thus, Tim Haig continues, it's understandable why the plural would be used for it speaks of the fact that the single Torah is God's standard of righteousness for all aspects of life and is therefore plural in nature and application. 
laws versus just law. Moreover, Timant continues from a Greek perspective, the place where one makes moral and ethical decisions where the cognitive and volition functions take place within a person is the mind, right? From a Greek perspective, it's the mind. For the Hebrew, by contrast, this is the heart which is mentioned in the next clause. And so that, that kind of uh, gives us a clue as to why there's that difference. Write my Torah on your heart or within you or write it on your mind, right? The way a Greek person would think versus the way a Hebrew person would think. But again, we're still talking about an individual, so it's not terribly different in the, the overall meaning of what the prophecy is trying to uh, convey. Tim Haig continues, it's interesting that the Septuagint translators understood the Hebrew bikirbam uh, within them or within their midst to mean within their minds. Remember, it's the Hebrew translators into Greek, the Greek translators from the original Hebrew into Greek, they're the ones that chose the within them into within their or within their minds. They're the ones that made that particular change there. He continues, the Hebrew might be understood as within their homes or families or communities, etc. Right? When we say within them, within them, Bikir Bam, I will I will put my laws within them. The standard Hebrew rendering might suggest I will put my laws within their homes or within their families or within the individuals or communities or something, rather than having an individual cognitive meaning within their mind. So Hebraic of more likes to convey and think in terms of collective, like a group. Like if you've ever prayed the standard prayer book, Jewish prayer book, most of the prayers are in the collective, like uh, the, the the plurals and speaking of Israel as a group, they're, they're more group prayers rather than individual prayers. But um, the contrast with the Greek mind or model or thought process is more individualistic. Regardless, Tim Hicks says, the use of mind surely parallels the Hebraic understanding of heart, right, which is lev or levav, as appropriate for a Hellenistic audience. And then he comments on, I will write them on their hearts. Let me see, do I want to read through this tonight? Yeah, we've got time. It's not too long. And I will write them, speaking of the Torah, or the laws, I'll write them on their hearts. BLXX, and thus our author as well, continues with the plural, write them on their hearts, referring to the previous plural, plural laws. The Hebrew of Jeremiah, having the singular, my Torah, write Torah T, follows with, um, and upon the heart I will write it. Right, because the Torah is singular, so thus the the um the the pronoun following in the next clause has to continue with the uh, singular. So thus, I will write it. Tim Haig continues. Thus, the whole Torah is envisioned here, not simply part of it. The whole Torah as a collective singular. Which, of course, again, is no different than saying laws, because we know that the Torah is not one law, but it's a collection of many laws. Thus, it's one collective whole that's written. This in itself should warn us away from the common teaching of the Christian church that the ceremonial and civil parts of the Torah have been abolished and only the moral aspects remain, right? Uh, the point that Tim is trying to emphasize is that Jeremiah's prophecy, God said through Jeremiah's mouth, I will write it on their heart, right? I will write it, not I will write them, meaning the moral and the civil, but not the ceremonial or something like that. In other words, since God said he's going to write it, and it's one one piece of cloth, one collection of, one body of laws, one 
um, book of collection of laws, then we don't have a right to pick it apart and say, well, part of it's on our heart, but part of it isn't, right? Part of it's there, but part of it's not. That's what Tim's trying to uh, highlight here. In Jeremiah's new covenant, the Torah is considered as everywhere in the Tanakh as a singular whole that cannot be divided. And in the final paragraph we'll read tonight, the Torah written upon the heart is a direct fulfillment of the Shema, right? Deuteronomy 6, 6 and eleven eighteen, where God commands his people to, quote, put these words upon your heart and your soul, right? God tells us that we need to put these, these words which, which I command you these days shall be upon your heart. So God commands us to put them on the heart, and then God comes along and says, indeed, yes, I myself will put them on your heart. Um, Tim continues, the very fact that God commands this of his people in the Shema is proof that the internalization of the Torah was always possible where true faith existed. Thus, the expression, quote, a man after God's own heart, end quote, reference 1 Samuel 13, 14, draws upon the command to write God's Torah, his instructions upon one's heart, right? A man after God's own heart. A person after God's own heart is one who has, by faith and through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, internalized the Torah of God through hearty agreement and humble submission and a growing desire to please their Redeemer in all aspects of life. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's watch the video for tonight. When the video is complete, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright is Tate's Tour Ministries. 2015 All Rights Reserved. Let's take a look at the question for tonight. What is the law of Christ? Yes, this is a very important topic that we should be studying about. Let's see what I have to say. Short answer, all of the Torah, the law, is concentrated, as it were, into the two most important commandments, love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. And we looked at that love your neighbor as yourself in our liturgy. We didn't do the Shema, but we did the neighbor part. Right? Thus, I agree that the law of Christ must, in fact, be the heart of the law as given by God, his Father, with one proviso. The focal point of a person's law-keeping must include faith in Messiah in order for it to be counted as the law of Christ. So that's going to be our first um, a point that we need to emphasize. After all, did not Messiah confess that he only lives to do what the Father tells him to do? Read John 14.31. And that he kept his Father's commandments? Read John 15.10. Right? Two important questions. This would tell me that as we love Messiah and keep the Messiah's commandments, we are in fact loving God and keeping the Father's commandments just like our Master did. And what are the Father's commandments? Did he not in fact already give them to us somewhere else in the Bible before Jesus even showed up on the scene? Yeah, we shouldn't have to guess. Yeshua Jesus did not replace the Old Testament law with the law of Christ. That's the gauntlet that I'm throwing down for most of us in Christian circles. Here's my long answer from my commentary to Galatians, which is available at tatetor.com slash exegeting Galatians. All right. 
You guys ready for this? We talked about this a long time ago as well. Speaking of the phrase, the law of Christ, why should we interpret this phrase as anything other than the perfect law of God as already revealed in the pages of Scripture and as perfectly modeled by our Master Himself? Why do we do that, people? Why do we say the law of Christ has to be something different than the law of God? I don't know why we do that, but we do. I think the true meaning is, quote, bear one another's burdens in this way. You will be fulfilling the Torah's true meaning, which the Messiah upholds, end quote. I think that's actually how David Stern renders it. The teachings of Yeshua were no doubt known among the congregations of the way, even before the Gospels as we know them were finalized in their canonical form. So we know that what Yeshua taught uh, verbally was being circulated. The apostles were commissioned to make disciples of the nations and to teach them to observe all that I commanded you, Matthew 28, 18, and following as part of the Great Commission. And we know that as well. Thus, the Torah of Messiah, the Naman to Christu, should be understood as, quote, the Torah as Messiah taught it and lived it, end quote, in my understanding of this particular phrase from Paul's uh, book and letter to uh, the Galatians there. It is anachronistic that is out of time and place to interpret the phrase as though the Torah of Messiah is different than the Torah of Moses. That's our reading into the text and supplying a meaning that was probably not present in Paul's day. That's what I mean by anachronistic. Surely Yeshua's teachings were at variance with a good deal of the rabbinic interpretations of the Torah, but they were not in any manner contradictory to Moses. And that's, that's a very careful distinction that we need to make when we're looking at this. Rather, Yeshua both in his words and in his actions brought the divinely intended meaning of the Torah to the eyes and ears of those he taught. Understand what I mean there? They were misunderstanding it. They were misusing it. They were misrepresenting it. So he came to set it on a proper foundation and to rightly teach it and rightly understand it and to rightly walk it out. His emphasis was upon a divine living out of the Torah in which genuine love for God and one's neighbor was the driving factor in group policy decisions. See how that works again? It's that Leviticus passage. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's Torah obedience. While the sages were experts at piling burdens upon men's shoulders without lifting a finger to help them bear the load. Matthew 23, 4, right? That's not loving your neighbor. That's that's uh, that's the opposite of loving your neighbor, piling up heavy burdens. Yeshua actually sought to unwrap the Torah from the entanglements of men and to show that living a life of Torah by faith is not a burden, but a delight. Yay! Look at that guy. He's just dancing on the Torah. He's so happy. Why? Because he got the Holy Spirit on him. And that's the only way to properly live out Torah. Therefore, by bearing the burdens of one another, the followers of Yeshua fulfill the Torah as it was intended to be fulfilled by living it out in the context of love for God and love for one's neighbor. And that's why Yeshua said that these are the two greatest. It's in this way the Torah as taught and modeled by Yeshua would be fulfilled. Is this beginning to make sense now? All right, I hope it was. Hope it was informative for you. Catch my podcast on iTunes. Search for my name, Ariel Hanavi, in the iTunes store. As well, head on out to YouTube and, and, and search for my name, Ariel Hanavi. Uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications because new content is added weekly or even daily. All right? And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. 
I thank you for your mercy and for your grace and for your kindness and for the fact that you have protected us and provided for us. Help us, Lord, to continue to trust in you and to have a hunger and thirst after your word so that we can um, implement it, so that we can study it, so that we can learn from it, so that we can um, teach others how to study and learn it and do it. Um, Continue to raise us up and give us a voice, give us um, witness uh, for others around us, people that we might meet and encounter. Help us to be bold in our witness and not to be ashamed of the gospel of Messiah. Indeed, um, he is the only hope for uh, both Jew and Gentile in the world today. And if we don't share the good news with both Jew and Gentile, who else is going to share it, right? Thank you, Lord, for this awesome responsibility. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen. Amen.